Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast for yet another example of astronomy misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 36. Today I'm bringing you a special bonus episode of my Skepticamp Colorado talk entitled GAPS Young Earth Creationists Must Believe or Ignore, where GAPS stands for Geology, Astronomy, and Physics. I chose to merge these fields together by talking about the age of the Earth and how we know how old things are. This topic will be addressed in detail on the podcast throughout the month of June as well. The audio quality is not the best, and it was recorded in front of a live studio audience without the laugh track, and there is also video. I'm going to attempt to release the video both on the website for this episode and in the RSS feed for the podcast. If there are issues, let me know. The video is about 80 megabytes, and it's relatively low quality, but it is what it is. Stuart Robbins, and I'm going to screw up. Stuart Robbins is currently doing postdoc work, right? I'm going to let him introduce himself, but this guy, he's a really, really wrong smart one. guy. He's also a hell of a cook, so if he ever offers to bring food it's over It's a galaxy up there Tell right him you want fudge. Yeah, yes, where's the, the fudge? Bring it over. Read. Where's his... You have to do the... Uh, uh, drag it over to the other display. Yep, I'm going there. Or our display. The title of this talk is there going we to go. be Gaps You Must Ignore yep. or Believe to be a Young Earth Creation. All right. And... Hopefully this... Uh, actually, no, this isn't right. One moment. Uh, so, yes... The title of this talk is Gaps That Young Earth Creationists Must Believe or Ignore in Order to Be a Young Earth Creationist. And for those of you who are familiar at all with the evolution-creation supposed debate, you might appreciate that I use the term gaps here because this is something that creationists often like to say, that there are gaps in evolution. And that clicker doesn't work either. So, just use the mouse button. Uh, when I was trying to figure out how to give this talk, and it looks like some stuff is going to get cut off, but we'll just deal with that. So I was trying to figure out how to give this talk today, and I could have used the approach I used back in 2009, where I go through a lot of little bit bitty claims that creationists would say, well, comets prove that the universe is young. Well, Earth's magnetic field proves the universe is young. But I didn't really want to do that approach again. I wanted to do something cohesive. So I thought, well, maybe I could go with the we just look at the universe through different lenses. If any of you are familiar, at least with Answers in Genesis, this is a common refrain of their whole mindset as secular scientists and biblical scientists look at the universe through different lenses. We look at it through man's theories, and they look at it through God's Bible. And that's how we arrive at different things, because we all have to fit it in our own worldviews. But there's really not much to say about this other than what I just said. So instead, I decided that what I wanted to do was I wanted to look at different pieces of evidence that people point to for the young Earth part of the universe. Either the young Earth or, in other words, how we know or we think we know how the geologists, the astronomers, physicists know how old the Earth and the universe actually are. So to do that, I'm going to take you through sort of a fun graphic, but also sort of a history of Earth's history's history. So how do we know how old things are? 
To begin with, ages of things were as old as people could remember or people had written records for. So, for example, the Egyptian civilization knew that today that the, that the universe would have been about 5,000 years old because that's about how long their civilization was definitely around for. The Sumerians, they have an empire that dated or had an empire that dated to about 4,000 B.C., to the point that The Onion decided to put up a humorous article at the end of 2009 that the Sumerians look on with confusion as the Christian God creates the world. <laughs> I, I do recommend that you look up this article because it's quite funny with, you know, Farmer Joe was like, I don't know why they had to create light. We've been using light to farm for 500 years. It's a good article. Uh, other people decided to use their own calendar system. So I'm not going to talk about the Mayan calendar. That was my talk last year. Um, the Jewish calendar, though, it starts at 3760 B.C. That's when the universe was created according to the Jews. Uh, Bishop Usher, though, was really the first Christian, the first person to sit down with the Bible and decide how old the universe was. And he did this by apparently there's some very boring part of the Bible that reads like a family tree that just goes, so-and-so begat so-and-so when they were this old, and that so-and-so begat another person when they were this old, and so it, it goes on and on and on, and apparently he had nothing better to do, so in about 1650, he counted up all of these begats and all of these ages until Jesus, and then calculated that the universe was created the evening of Sunday, October 23rd, 404 BC, Italian time zone, I'm assuming. It's, it's funny he had the exact age. Yeah. Like he, he had to have just pulled that completely out of his ass. Because, I mean, it's not like the Bible even says that this guy was like 32 years old in three days or something. I, you know, Kent Hovind, an, another young earth creationist, doesn't quibble about the evening and Sunday on exactly October 23rd, but there, this forms the basis, this basic idea of counting up the genealogies in the Bible really forms the basis of pretty much every young earth creationist belief of the age of the world, the whole young earth part of the idea. I thought it was a Wednesday. <laughs> well, so, so then you have to figure out our calendar system has changed through time. He was using the uh, Gregorian, or, yeah, Gregorian calendar, we use the Julian calendar, or vice versa, something. Uh, and different parts of the world switch to different calendars at different times. So, you know, figuring out this exact thing is, is really crazy, but people do it. And this is the basis of how these young Earth people fit everything into a young Earth scenario, because they have a literal reading, what I'll say is a literal interpretive reading of the Bible, because I'm sure that some of them wear polyester with cotton. Unknowingly. <laughs> yeah, well, whatever. <laughs> so, along this time, we had the scientific enlightenment, the revolution, the renaissance, all that fun stuff in science, where we had people going around thinking, well, let's ignore what people have held as dogma and people have said is fact. And let's go out and actually see what we can observe and what those observations tell us. And so the first thing that geologists did was they threw out the assumption 
that Earth was as old as human civilization, which incidentally means that a loving God did not create the universe just for us because he created it long before us. I mean, that's another sort of root assumption of Christianity or young Earth creationism is that Earth and everything else was specially created just for us. So it wouldn't make sense for stuff to exist before we did, at least for more than a week. (laughs) So this is a very abbreviated list of different attempts over the centuries to figure out the age of the world. And I recommend looking this up uh, elsewhere. Pop Origins has a great, very long list. It's quite interesting. But I wanted to take you through a few of the highlights. Uh, These two guys, whose names I cannot pronounce, were really the first scientists to try to figure out how old Earth was. And they did this by assuming that... uh, the Earth collapsed from a giant cloud of gas and dust, which I'll talk about in about seven slides. And when it did that, it was really hot to begin with. And this comes from physics that was invented by Newton in the previous century. So they figured, well, if Earth started out hot, how long did it take to cool to the temperature it is today? They did this by heating up iron spheres and figuring out how long it took them to cool. And then they mathematically scaled these to different sizes and then figured out how long it would take something the size of the Earth to cool down. They arrived at an age of 75,000 years, which was 12 times longer than young Earth creationists said at the time. And it's not important that they got the wrong number. What's important is that it was one of these first attempts to objectively try to do something, and they actually did an experiment and followed their data where the data led, and they set the stage for a lot of future estimates. In fact, some of you might recognize the name Kelvin. Kelvin is one of the four units of temperature that we use, and Lord Kelvin repeated their experiment about 100 years later, but with new math invented by um, Fourier in order to come up with an age of about 20 to 400 million years for the age of the Earth. Now, creationists would look at that and say, well, scientists don't know what the hell they're doing because 75,000 to 1 million to 400 million, it's, they, they don't know what they're doing. It's 6,000. <laughs> <laughs> James Hutton was another person, and he was a geologist who looked at uplift and erosion rates at the time and then calculated based on those how long it would take for the uplift and erosion to get to the state where it was today. He came up with an age of millions of years, and... These are a bit out of order, but I wanted to put Kelvin under the same technique. So James Hutton was really the first to propose millions of years, and he's sometimes credited with the idea, or the invention of the idea, of deep time, because millions of years as opposed to 6,000. The reason that Charles Lyell is on this list is not necessarily because he attempted to date the Earth, but because he was really one of the fathers of modern geology. And... Lyell literally wrote the book on geology, and he figured out things like uh, stratigraphy, that a rock layer you can use for relative age dating, and stuff on top is generally going to be younger than stuff on the bottom. And these basic, basic fundamental principles of geology are really what we still teach and use today in the geology field. And I saw Rachel nodding, so I'm hopefully correct in that. Yes. (laughs) So at this point, I've said things like, okay, we assume that rates are the same in the past as they are today. And this brings us to an important (coughs) aside. 
about uniformitarianism <coughs> versus catastrophism. And this is something that, unless you're a student of the philosophy of science or study young earth creationism, you might not have heard these terms before. In fact, probably have not. The idea is that uniformitarianism is that stuff happened in the past the same way that it or they, because stuff can be singular or plural, do today. Catastrophism says no, it doesn't. That things happen stochastically, and a big thing happened here, and so you can't extrapolate back in time. And so these are two different worldviews, and the question is, well, what do you use? What's correct to assume? In general, geologists start with uniformitarianism. <coughs> so, for example, you have the Mississippi River Delta. Is the, the Mississippi River is depositing silt and dirt and material at a sort of fixed rate over a long period of time. And so we can extrapolate that rate backwards and say, okay, this is how long it took this amount of material to build up. But geologists also know that the Mississippi River was created by the last ice age. And so they know that this catastrophic event did interrupt this uniformitarian process. And so geologists start with the uniformitarian idea, but then they find these catastrophic events and stop those estimates. Young Earth creationism, in general, everything is cataclysmic, or catastrophe, or whatever. God stretched out the heavens. God made everything in six literal 24-hour days. I mean, let there be light, and snap, there's light. That's pretty fast and catastrophic. The flood. The flood explains everything in geology, according to young Earth creationists, and the flood is a catastrophe. I think most people would agree with that. <laughs> the issue with young Earth creationism assuming catastrophism is that they assume uniformitarian when looking at modern scientific data. And they do this in order to try to disprove long periods of time. So they'll look at the current recession rate of the moon, for example, which is receding from Earth at something like three centimeters a year. And they'll say, well, if you extrapolate this backwards in time, then the moon would have been at Earth a billion years ago. But geologists and astronomers say, well, the moon was in orbit 4.5 billion years ago. Therefore, they don't know what they're doing. And therefore, Earth is young at 6,000 years old. So they, they, they can't have it both ways, but they, they like to try. And so that's sort of an aside into uh, <coughs> this idea of uniformitarianism versus catastrophism that informs a little bit of this discussion. So I just mentioned the moon. Astronomers were having their piece of the age-dating pie as uh, geologists were figuring out their stuff. So astronomers were figuring out different ways to age-date the solar system and the universe around them. One of these came from the idea of planetary formation, how the solar system and the planets and the sun formed. And the idea that we still use today was formulated by Laplace in the 1600s. And Laplace said, well, it makes sense if there was a giant cloud of dust and gas, this nebula, that collapsed. And hence, we call it the nebular collapse theory. Astronomers are really not that creative with naming things. <laughs> the math invented by Isaac Newton and other people at the time showed that it would take hundreds of thousands of years for this to happen. So already for the formation of the world, not even just human civilization, but the formation of stuff in our solar system would have taken hundreds of thousands of years, not 6,000 or the snap of a finger. Similarly, we have issues with the speed of light. The reason why the speed of light comes in with age-dating things is 
the end of the room is you know, maybe a microsecond away in terms of the speed of light. So I know for a fact that the universe is at least a microsecond old because I can see the end of the room. Similarly, I know that the universe is at least eight and a third minutes because I can see the sun. And the sun is about eight and a third light minutes away. So you start to build up this scale of the universe and according to a finite speed of light, then the universe has to at least be as old as the most distant object that we can see. And I'll get more into this later, but as we progress through time, as I take you through this history of Earth's history's history, we come upon one of the most important <coughs> techniques today in age-dating rocks and skeletons and other things on Earth, and any samples that we can actually get. And yeah, someone else said kryptonite too. <laughs> kryptonite, anything radioactive, radioactive isotopes. And this technique was invented by Ernest Rutherford in 1905, only 10 years after radioactivity itself was first discovered. And to their credit, geologists said, hey, this completely changes what we thought about how Earth cooled down because this generates heat. And it's really, today, in fact, the last about 3 billion years, most of Earth's heat has been due to radioactivity as opposed to gravitational collapse. So because radiometric dating is an important process, and it's really key, and it's something that creationists really hate, I'm going to take you through an overview of how it works, sort of a very simplified version, represented by this hourglass animation that I made. You start off with a parent element. You have a parent and a daughter. The parent is the radioactive element, and statistically, it is unstable, and over time, it will decay. If you have a hunk of this, like if I had a fistful of uranium in my hand, besides getting cancer, <laughs> over time, this uranium would decay. And the time it takes half of that uranium to decay is called its half-life. And that half-life is the same number for every hunk of uranium out there. Every hunk of carbon-14 will decay at a given rate. And this is governed by quantum mechanical processes that I don't have the time, nor inclination, nor interest whatsoever to get into. <laughs> but it's a statistical decay rate. You can't say when a given atom is going to decay. I can't say when that ball right there is going to drop down, like this is like Vegas, but <laughs> you can't know when a single atom is going to decay. All you can say is that ensemble, a group of these is going to decay statistically by a certain time period. So when the parent element decays, it creates a daughter particle. And in a closed system, neither the parent nor the daughter can escape. It's like you lock all the doors in the house until the kid's 18 and then you kick her out. Um, <laughs> so neither the parent nor the daughter can escape. And so if you know the rate that it takes a hunk of this element to decay, then you can measure the amount of parent, measure the amount of daughter, and figure out how long it took the parent to decay into that amount of daughter particle. And that's a long-winded way to say this equation, which I'm not going to say. But to give you an example, if you didn't quite get what I was saying before, let's say that we have a very precise instrument that is able to measure a very small sample of something. 
That sample has 20 atoms of carbon-12, which is a stable daughter particle, and it has 40 atoms of carbon-14, which is the radioactive parent isotope. The half-life of carbon-14 is about 5,730 years, so we can use this equation. I did the math already for you. The age of the sample is 3,352 years old, and that's really about as complicated as it gets, and at least as it gets for this talk, because I'm going to run out of time if I don't keep going. Uh, there are some complications to this, and there are ways to get out of them that physicists and geologists figured out 100 years ago. Other complications are that you have to have the parent particle present. If you don't have carbon-14 in your sample, you cannot use carbon-14 dating. It, so any sample where the carbon-14 is already decayed out to carbon-12 will not work with this method. Similarly, if you're trying to date a rock that doesn't have organic carbon-14 in it, you cannot use radiocarbon dating to date something that doesn't have it in it. This is something that creationists will often say, well, no fossil has ever been radiocarbon dated to show that it's millions of years old. Well, yes, that's because fossils don't have carbon and because carbon-14 dating doesn't work past about 50,000 years ago. You also have to have the daughter particle present and detectable. If you're trying to carbon date something and it has no carbon-12 in it, you cannot get a carbon-14 age because you have to have the daughter particle present. The system also has to be closed. And this is something that creationists like the harp on when they give their reasons why radiometric dating does not work. And if you follow any creationist website, if you're you know, a masochist, for example, <laughs> and, and you read these websites often, which I do, um, they, they're not a month literally goes by where at least one of them will publish an article trying to refute radiometric dating. One of the arguments they say is that you're assuming that rocks are closed systems. Well, yes, that's because geologists usually are not stupid. They will take a sample. We try not to be. When <laughs> <laughs> geologists try not to be stupid. They try to take their sample from, for example, the middle of a large rock as opposed to the outside so that the outside is open to the atmosphere and the environment, whereas the middle hopefully is not. They also try to use the tool in ways it was never designed to be used. So a creationist in this example would, for example, go to the hardware store, buy a hammer, and then try to return the hammer, or probably publish on the internet saying, hammers do not work because it could not do my taxes. <laughs> that is what they do here. They will use this tool. They, for example, took samples from lava from Mount St. Helens and claimed, well, this lab dated Mount St. Helens eruption that happened in the 1980s to be thousands of, or hundreds of thousands of years old. Well, that's because they took it to a lab that first dated. We cannot date anything younger than 2 million years old. 2 million is older than 20. They still gave them this sample. And they also did not give them a homogeneous sample. So the lab was dating different minerals that form at different times within the lava because there are some kinds of minerals that survive inside of the earth at very, very hot temperatures. Uh, some of these are called zircons. And actually, there's a guy at CU Boulder who has done some of the preeminent work on dating zircons, which are some of the oldest minerals that we have on earth. And it's really how we get the formation time of the solar system. They also will sometimes argue that the decay times change. Why? Because the flood did. 
Uh, the flood released all this biblical amounts, literally, of radioactive material, and so it screwed up all the ages, and God's testing us. So my final... humans have increased the amount of carbon-14 in the atmosphere. Well, yeah, the SUVs. Because uh, <laughs> we're awesome. Yeah, well, I mean, carbon-14 <laughs> forms in the atmosphere because of um, cosmic rays interacting with car- uh, nitrogen-14. That's a, a side story that I really do not have time to get into. Uh, so my next topic is the speed of light. Don't worry, I have three sides left. Awesome. Now, the speed of light, as I mentioned before, is important. And this slide is also important, not in the sense that I expect you to read it and understand it all because I think it's a little out of focus, but the idea is that we measure distances in astronomy through something that's called the astronomical distance ladder. And the point of this ladder is that we start by measuring distances close to home. Our basic unit of measurement is the distance between Earth and the Sun. And we can use that distance and the basic idea of parallax, which is how our human eyes tell 3D distance. We can measure the subtle movements of stars because our perspective in the universe changes as we go from one side of the Sun to the other. With parallax, we can measure stars out to about 1,000 light years. So we know that the universe is at least 1,000 years old because it took that time for the light to get to us. We can then use some of those stars as standard distance candles. And we can use those stars to get distances to other galaxies. And we can use those galaxies in other distance measurements, like with supernova, we can calibrate that scale. So it's this ladder that's progressively built up through different techniques and gets us these billions of light years <coughs> distance that you'll often see in a news article. Like, this galaxy is 13 million light years away, or this supernova is the most distance recorded in the universe, and it's at 13 billion light years away. And it's all through this calibrated and recalibrated distance ladder that astronomers use. But this presents a problem for young Earth creationists, because if we are measuring these <coughs> objects at these millions and billions of light years away, then how did that light get to us in 6,000 years? Creationists, of course, do have ways to say that it did. One is that the speed of light has changed. It has decayed through time. This is often, actually, a claim that speed of light has changed through time, and they will cite very specific studies through time and then fit an exponential decay function to it. What they do is they leave out two-thirds of the studies that have tried to measure light over the last 400 years. I listed a few in a few slides ago, and I didn't bother reading them because it wasn't that important. But they'll argue that it decays. Why? Because of sin. Creationists like to blame everything on sin. And I thought having a Jewish mother was bad. (laughs) Another is that they argue that the universe was hyper-accelerated, so the light... You know, these galaxies really were close to us, but when God stretched out the heavens, the light stretched out too. Another way is, as I summarize it, God the dick. (laughs) God made everything look old in order to test us. He made the light and root in order to test us. You know, let there be light, he snapped his fingers. Well, it didn't take 8.3 minutes for the sun's light to get to us. He made it en route to test us. And so really, in the end, that's how creationists argue with a young earth, or for a young earth. They start with the genealogies in the Bible, 
and a literal reading, according to them, of these biblical texts says that the universe can only be about 6,016 years old, because we're in 2012 now, uh, and, you know, Eastern time zone or whatever. But, independent evidence, if you don't base everything on that assumption and try to fit it in, independent evidence points towards a younger, I'm sorry, an older, (laughs) an older universe, as in billions of years. To reconcile this, the young earth creationists will distort the science, point out minor flaws, misuse tools, all this other stuff, or if they can't explain the evidence away, they'll just say, God is testing us, and if you don't believe, then you're going to hell. And so I guess I'm going to hell, because those are the gaps that young earth creationists must believe or ignore. You have uh, about two minutes. <laughs> uh, how, do the, how do the older creationists uh, uh, deal with these the same issues? They don't have these issues because they accept the scientific evidence for the age of the Earth and the universe. The older Earth creationists basically start out by saying that the word yom in uh, the Hebrew word or Aramaic term yom in the uh, Genesis 1-1 translates not to a literal 24-hour day but to a period of time. And so they can say that the first six days of Genesis are actually... Uh, millions or billions of years. And so older creationists don't have this issue. I mean, it still doesn't quite make sense in terms of the order of things, but they don't have this ish- same issue that younger creationists do. So you mentioned uh, there are four units of temperature measurement we use. And yes. All I can think of is Fahrenheit, Celsius, and Kelvin. What else is there? Yes, the bastard child of the temperature measurement system. So we have, <laughs> you know, centigrade or Celsius, and Kelvin is absolute zero on centigrade scale. We have Fahrenheit, and the absolute zero on the Fahrenheit scale is uh, Rankin's. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. I think I one time? One yeah, more. you get one. Quick. Okay. Um, can they do radioactive dating, not with just carbon-14, but with uranium or something to date that? Oh, yeah. Further? There are about a dozen different oh, techniques. Yeah. And Potassium they, argon. Yeah, and argon-argon. I mean, these, these so dating many. techniques, just like the astronomical distance ladder, they build on each other and they all calibrate each other as well. So there are about there are about a dozen or so. Oh, there's more. Th- I mean, basically, just go to Wikipedia and look up radiometric dating, and there is a list of all the commonly used methods, and it's ludicrous. Yeah. And um, I'll add a rap reference. Oh, oh, we joked. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, you you can tell that I am so hip hop, Joe. It's you insane. are. You <laughs> don't you? Thank you, Stuart. <laughs> That wraps up this topic for the 36th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website, send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net, or leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website. I read every email, and I appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. 
If you like this podcast, please write a review and rate it on iTunes. Also tell other people.